Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, and welcome to our weekly edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of February 26th, 2024. So it's another fun Monday. Uh, we talk about it a lot, but there is a deeper report that came out. So I was oh, going to go ahead. Yeah. yeah, I was going to dive into that. Um, this one is called uh, SEO poisoning to domain control. The goot loader saga continues. So this one's a, an interesting report because uh, you didn't get to see the final stages of the impact either because the adversary started to kind of lose interest or maybe it wasn't an intended target once they started getting around. Um, or they... Um, got removed before they can uh, achieve that. It just seemed like there was some activity that just kind of ceased and then later removed from the network. Um, but there's a lot of consistent nuggets that we've seen from past intrusions, especially the ones that the, the Deep Report um, post about. Uh, so there's a lot of good technical nuggets in here to pay attention to. Uh, one of the things I really liked was, you know, we, we've talked about uh, SEO um, poisoning, search engine optimization poisoning. Um, the idea there is to do certain things to make it so when people use Google or other types of search engines to find things they're looking for, you're able to have your malicious payloads or sites uh, kind of filter to the top of the list. So they're the more likelihood that they'll click into them um, increases. And what I liked here is it's not like they showed a good way of how to detect it. But if you're investigating something, how to identify as it being the possible justification for the intrusion? Because they have a little little segment there that kind of walks the logs of like, hey, you can see the browser opening, you can see where Google's in, where a search kicked off, and then the person's obviously searching for something associated with implied employment agreements, and that's what they landed on in order to get the page, pull down the malicious payloading, and run from there. Um. So one of the things that uh, this specific attack employed um, for things to look for, um, scheduled tasks, you know, it's a big one, but one of the things I like to pay attention to if you're collecting data for scheduled tasks uh, is, and I believe that's event 7045, I don't know, Lee might be able to correct me if I'm wrong, um, but it's looking for what types of executables uh, you see running. And when I say executables, the ones I like to focus on as well are things associated with um, command line scripting um, and execution where you have like WScript, CMD, PowerShell, and things like that because you may see it in your environment Environment is legitimate, but um, I would think those would stand out if people are starting to use those for their persistent mechanisms. So that was one thing. There's also a, a, a heavy use of um, encoded PowerShell commands. Uh, one, of, one of the ways they actually stored their Cobalt Strike Beacon information and things were actually in a registry key uh, that contained encoded PowerShell. Uh, and that was, and they actually used the software Microsoft Personalization uh, registry key, which usually stores information about how your environment's kind of set up, like what colors you use, certain other things about how you liked um, your desktop to be and so forth. Uh, they also use PowerShell to download things um, later on. Um, we've seen a lot of that. You know, if you're looking for PowerShell execution and a common keyword to see your web client and download um, used together because of the object they're creating there. Uh, and then, you know, one of the things I always call out now or like to call out is the just use of CMD slash C, you know. And one of the interesting things here is they're using it um, with a way to pass information to a pipe with Echo. Uh, which is the common cobalt strike characteristic. So uh, something obviously to look at, and it is not common for people to be passing command line scripts with Echo in general anyways uh, that way. 
So uh, that kind of stands out. And then, you know, the common the disabled offender where you're setting the MP preferences, that was a, a technique they were doing um, as well. And then they wanted to use a lot of uh, remote desktop. And I think we've talked about um, this before, but some of their lateral movement was with remote desktop. And one of the things they did was they wanted to make sure to enable uh, restricted admin mode on desktops. And uh, by doing this um, with the registry keys, uh, you basically enable the use of passing hashes instead of actually having to break the hash to get the password and then authenticate. So it just makes it easier if you're collecting information um, to then authenticate and move laterally. And they also did some remote WMI to disable the deny TS connections, which basically uh, is a way to help allow um, that remote desktop connection. And then another common remote um, access that you see, I think, Cobalt Strike kind of is responsible for this a lot of times, but where you see a service being created and the file name is an environment variable, which means it's kind of encapsulated in print, uh, percentage signs. So it's the percentage com spec percentage, and then, you know, all your arguments and code after that. Uh, that's a common way to get lateral access, especially with getting uh, system level privileges and things as well. Uh, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting beyond just some of those common things I mentioned that kind of got me thinking. I always talk about aggregations based on like, oh, what are the hosts doing? What are the users doing? Well, they apparently were able to get enough credentials um, from their initial access and things and activities that a lot of these behaviors didn't necessarily associate with the same login session or even the same credential. So sometimes they'd ladder with something else or something, whatever. And they called out the login ID to kind of help identify that. Now, when you log into a system, there's a login ID um, that's associated on the local system, but also there is a logon ID that gets this, or, or uh, GUID, uh, GUID uh, for the domain that actually tracks your specific session across multiple systems in the domain. So there's like two different IDs to really look at. Um, but I thought in this case, it just gave me the idea that maybe that'd be a really interesting field to aggregate off of. Isn't just looking at the username, but maybe the actual sessions these users are doing because sometimes when you look at a username from an active user and there's malicious use of their account, it all gets bundled together. Um, and I thought if you're using the logon ID or the sessions, then it'd be very easy to identify this activity is associated with bad stuff and everything in it is associated with bad and there's no mixed in good and you'd be able to kind of differentiate between the two. Um, so I kind of gave me that idea. I haven't tested that yet, but um, I thought that was a, an interesting view of the data. Um, and then obviously, you know, when you see a lot of activity, they were scanning for specific remote uh, access and credential based things. Anytime you see the same port hit across your environment from a single host, it's typically not a good sign. Um, and then you see interesting deal or uh, executables running simple things like ping, like they had DLL hosts, which they were um, basically, uh, I believe, injected into and they were executing ping um, from it. And that's not a normal process chain for that. Uh, so like I said, some really good artifacts uh, to kind of see continuously being used from previous breaches and things. So, you know, the behaviors are somewhat consistent. Outcomes are a little different. Um, obviously, what they were looking for is very different than uh, potentially ransomware. I would expect that there was ransomware, um, that that was the goal. There would be some of that before they got removed or went dormant. So, um, so yeah, so those are some of my thoughts. What did you uh, think when you looked at the large volume of data from the DFA report? Well, apparently a lot that you did as well, because that's how I was going down my nose. I'm just like, check. That's it. <laughs> um, which is good. I mean, um, but... So, yes, you said 7045, that will capture service or scheduled tasks being created. But also, another ID is 4698. That will also capture it. I believe that 7045 is captured in the Windows system. Mm -hmm. It is. Where 4698 is captured in the Windows security of MLs. So... Two things you could correlate together um, or search on one rather than the other, depending on your environment, um, you know, whatever you have visibility into. Um, you mentioned a lot about the processes that I've let, uh, the, or the process chains that, you know, I had, if you see things 
Uh, or it's really easy to tell if ping is being used by something other than like PowerShell or command that that might be a little suspicious. Uh, a lot of Microsoft or Windows Defender um, manipulation where they're trying to delete it, uh, disable all the, you know, the tools or the uh, capabilities of it. Mm -hmm. One thing that I really enjoyed um, was as I was reading down because they, they deal, dealt with a lot of encoded commands. Um, and a little like nugget that they threw out there that I, I didn't, or I guess I've seen, but I haven't like never really thought about it or just put it together. But they said that um, looking at the encoded command, if it starts with SQB, that's a good chance that um, that correlates with the keyword IEX when using PowerShell. And uh, IEX yeah. often used for downloading files. There's also another call out for the uh, encoded command starting with JAB or JAB, um, which was associated with variables being used in the script. Um, now, I know, I think through the research uh, that I've done in the past and, you know, messing with encoded commands, I've seen JAB and CAB, so KAB as well, uh, whenever I'm like pointing to, or whenever I'm using PowerShell commandlets. But th that's just neat that. They pointed out because if you were looking for encoded commands and you were like, hey, well, you know what? If there are encoded commands in my environment, what are some keywords that you could use to add to your query to kind of um, in an inclusive way narrow down the results quicker? Um, this might be a way to do it. So look for cab, jab, or the um, SQV. Now, granted, I'm not saying that that will find all malicious stuff. Um, or everything you find with that query as well as malicious, but it gives you an opportunity to see what your environment looks like as well. So I think you bring up a, an interesting point because um, a lot of times, you know, you'll see where things are double encoded, right? And I think the reasoning for that is some people were getting smart and looking for those key terms within just the single encoded because they're consistent. And by doing another layer of encoding, now you're able to mask that. And then it becomes that like, you know, whack-a-mole kind of game where we can encode it five times and you have to like figure out those keywords but i think it's a great idea to be looking for those common things especially you know if you're in an environment where you know you have legitimate encoded commands um that might make the malicious ones stand out more when you look for common um strings or terms like that that's a very good point um i mean actors like us are always living away well they're always looking a way to get around uh, our, our techniques of looking for them. So mm -hmm. introducing that double one uh, or even multiple encoding it is definitely a way to go. So very good point there as well. Cool. Yeah, so that's that's pretty much all I got. It's a good report, especially if you're not used to looking at technical reports. I think these are the best because of the, the amount of data and also the explanations that kind of go along with it. So definitely check it out. All got? right. All right. So my first article was actually an advisory from CISA or the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, and it was titled uh, "Top Cyber Actions Securing Water Systems." Now we both worked in OT back in the day, um, mm -hmm. and it seems that this isn't not not just uh, water OT, but any of the other ones. Uh, or operational technology in general has a um, has an issue with not and, and I don't mean this in a bad way at all. Um, they're not they're not behind the times. The technology is behind the times simply because when all these infrastructures and devices were created, they were kind of expecting people to be there operating them versus we're going to connect all these to the internet someday. So we got to make sure they're secure now. Um, there wasn't a lot of security whenever your security is the trusted worker that flips switches or does what they need to locally. Um, what, what I also liked about this is that um, not only did they did CISA like put some things together, but they, they met with the American Water Works Association the water ISAC and the MS ISAC 
um, which is the multi-state information sharing and analysis center, which I didn't know about. Um, water ISAC, same thing, water information sharing and analysis center. But what I really, really, really enjoyed about this, now it's a very simple document. Uh, the report isn't, um, or the advisory isn't like this huge explanation. But what they do is they touch on some key things that, or key tasks that should be performed to improve their security. Now, these things are, I'm, I'm not going to say basic in a sense, but they are the things that kind of umbrella over any industry or environment, whether it be a bank, a water treatment facility, a normal corporate environment, or even things like at your own home. Right, so like the first one is reduce expo uh, exposure to public-facing internet. Um, you know, one of the biggest things that we hear about, um, or whenever I'm reading Intel reports, there's normally a lot of like public-facing RDP. And if that's the case, you know, attackers are going to see that and they're going to try and target it. But what I really liked about this is that they didn't just explain the doc or explain this step of saying, you know, reduce your exposure. Here you go. What they did is they linked and supplied tools that can be used every step of the way um, or every recommendation, they backed it up with some tools. Here, reach out to this, reach out to this, or this organization. Let us help you with um, doing vulnerability assessments. Um, like in the first one, they said the free resources ceases free cyber vulnerability scanning for water utilities. It's a fact sheet that explains the process. And then you can also email them to get help further on. So they're not uh, they're not just saying do these things. They're also backing it up to say, here, we'll help you go, which um, kind of tells me that, you know, they're taking this more seriously because they know what's at stake, uh, which is a good thing. Um, because, you know, water treatment or all the critical critical infrastructure in general, um, you know, we always talked about back in the day that is another or are the actors in our environment? The answer was probably yes, but it's just the fact or the metaphor that was used that they have their finger on the light switch. So if they are they actually going to turn off all the water? treatment facilities? Are they going to actually turn off all the energy sector and so on? Now that, you know, that would be almost like a, a act of war. So probably not, but if they're there already, then they definitely could, if they did plan something. Um, well, I mean, it's like the recent reports of China being within a lot of pieces of infrastructure, infrastructure. So. Absolutely. Like they're there. We like, yeah. we just, and I, I don't want to spread the whole assumed breach idea but it kind of puts it in perspective of treating it like well what's gonna happen here um and then there was you know conduct regular cybersecurity assessments which once again they provided tools uh change default passwords immediately which not, not ironically i guess i should say i laughed at this because if these tools or devices or whatever the case may be like PLCs are being used for years and they're not being replaced because that, you know, these are works. Imagine what the password is um, from way back in the day. And in my mind, like I could all, I always see the fear in an environment. I'm saying like, you know what, this has a default password. We're going to keep it because then we don't have to document it. And then that documentation may never get lost. And if it gets lost, we have to replace the device instead of being able to just recover from it. And so I could see it. I could see that theory. I understand it like completely. But unfortunately, that kind of mentality kind of led us to this whole default passwords everywhere. Um, and then the last one was there that I mean, I'm going to mention was that they want you to conduct or they own water treatment facilities to conduct an inventory of OT and IT assets. Which, once again, it's it's a simple idea, much harder to put into action than um, than to say, because I know some uh, environments 
are so large that it's just insanely difficult to keep up with all of your inventory and all the software uh, and all the hardware that gets onto it, especially with now he's like uh, VPNs, working from home, bring your own devices and so on. I mean, you name it, all those buzzwords that just make things much more complicated. Um, but I thought this was interesting because it actually overlaps with the CIS critical uh, security controls where top one is inventory of hardware and the second one is, or the second control is actually inventory of software. Uh, but knowing what exists in your environment um, can give you an idea of what a baseline looks like and how the baseline, and if you can find outliers simply by looking for processes that, uh, or software that's being executed in your environment that shouldn't be or doesn't exist within that baseline. Um, so a really good um, advisory. I really enjoy it, and it's good to see the um, the cybersecurity community not not just putting information out like this, but not working in a silo. Like it's easy for the CISO to come out and say, "Here's what we think," but when they talk about all the resources that they um, that they gain from other facilities, um, like the American Water Works Association, like that just alone. It tells me that they're going the extra mile and due diligence to question the users um, versus the ideas. Because there's nothing worse than getting a tool that people are like, we designed it to do this. And you look at it and you try and use it. And you're just like, no one actually used this to do anything. They just designed it the way they think users would use it. And it's not anywhere close. Um, but... What, uh, I'll stop here because I've been rambling a lot. What, what were your thoughts? Uh, both good and bad. Um, so I, it's always interesting when you read reports like this, and I feel like we're being talked to like we're children. But for good reason, right? Like these are just understood. Like these, like when you go to like the summarize eight bullet points where it's reduce exposure to public things, do regular cybersecurity assessments, change default passwords, conduct an inventory of things, develop exercises and instant response plans and things, back things up, reduce exposure to vulnerabilities, and then do awareness training. Those are all things that like we should just be doing. And so it's really easy to say that. And it's really easy to um, understand and agree with that. But the thing that I think is the problem is now you're trying to apply all these things uh, to an environment that never had to worry about cybersecurity like it does today that's existed for 15, 20 or more years. So then it's like, well, gosh, how do we solve that problem with what we know are good practices? And um, just like the, having the default password thing, you know, you got to think before things were remotely connected, People went out to the middle of a field in the middle of a mountain in the middle of nowhere sometimes for some of these devices where they actually run and exist. And the only threat of someone using a default password is someone climbed a tower, plugged into it, and then pushed the password in, right? And so the risk is like, I mean, okay, there could be one person, but if they impact one device in the middle of nowhere, for them to get to the next device would take so long, or the coordinated attack would have to be so big, it would be easy to respond to and adjust. Well, times have changed, right? We've introduced a lot of um, ability and agility in these systems without actually uh, implementing, getting everything up to snuff to be accessed and available that way. Um, and so now we're kind of going backwards, right? Like, oh, we got to do all these things to fix things. And which I think is great, but I, I think people need to understand the scope of that problem. Um, on trying to make these types of environments secure, right? Um, so because the risk wasn't there to secure them in the way that we have to secure them with like every other IT asset out there. Um, now, the the other thing that I, I like and don't like about the report, like I, they do break out suggestions and give resources, but I always get kind of tired of the resources that are like, here's some knowledge articles to read about or checklists or things to help you understand the problem. Because I think these problems are pretty easy to understand. And I, I know that this is also a leverage. Like CISA has some really good programs where they want to go in and, and do the work for you. 
problem is there's a huge wait list, right? Like if you sign up for their free vulnerability scanning, like, you know, whatever, it's great and they'll give you good reporting and they'll help you, right? It's not a bad thing. But the problem is, is they don't have the resources as if everybody who said tomorrow, I want you to scan my environment. You'd be put on a list. It's probably backlogged by like 50 or 60 people in front of you. And these and this scanning and reporting takes time. So it's not like you can just get to it. Um, so be proactive and try to get on that list early, right? That's that's really the advice there. But just understanding the scope of this is isn't the best solution to the problem. It's basically putting a spotlight on it and then trying to say we should do some things with no real tools or things to give people. Uh, like, for instance, change the default password. You know, if you had a tool that you can help someone write the script to log in and change the password, that would be great. The problem is, is the amount of testing they have to go into that so you don't accidentally break something in these types of environments is also a hurdle, right? Because you can't, one company can't use the same tool the same way and so forth. So yeah, there's just a, it's like a mixed bag, right? For me in these types of reports, because the, the meaning is great. The tone is great. The delivery is as best as it maybe can be, um, but it's not solving anything unfortunately to me uh it's and it's just a matter of getting um companies and people to care enough um it should be CISA that cares enough right so then how do we do that maybe we motivate them by actually helping them understand the threat more or making it more real in certain capacities or giving them training and tooling um that's you know cost effective you know i think a, a big part of these problems isn't so much that people don't necessarily care it's either they don't have the time, the money or the knowledge. And we could solve some of the knowledge gaps effectively. And we can solve some of the, the expense part. If we can provide resources at a reasonable cost or free, it's the time element that they'll have to then manage, which I think is much easier to tackle one of the three prongs. Um, if the other two are help or help you get help in solving those. So, Kind of my take, you know, uh, like I said, I, I never want to like squash bad work. I just want, um, uh, I hate sometimes when people offer solutions that make people stop thinking about the problem essentially in a way like, oh, well we have a solution and it's not a real solution. Um, cause I want people to keep thinking and keep trying to solve this problem that isn't really solved yet. So question for you, uh, uh -huh. and I agree when I was reading this, not, not that I'm some guru around here, right? Um, and I was sitting there thinking like, okay, that heard that before, heard that before, heard that before. But do you think that, <laughs> do you think that if they didn't have to start at this level of awareness that maybe we get more technical documentation and solutions? Um, maybe I think the problem you run into a lot of times with securing environments like these, with the amount of risk that now is there, I mean, you talk about a supply chain, like how do you purchase your things? Well, businesses are there to make money. And unfortunately, critical infrastructure is, oh, not, I wouldn't say unfortunately, but critical infrastructure is privatized a lot of it. Right. So yeah. it needs to make money. And the only way to incentivize some of these companies is to make it cost so much if they don't do these things that they'll spend the money to do them the right way. And unfortunately, that is not the best carrot um, to really solve problems. It's more like problem avoidance, right? Um, so I feel like that's really what we should be thinking about when we need to get everybody on the same page and care about the same things. You know, unfortunately, the amount of action you see from anybody is how much they really care. And if their priority, if they have other competing priorities and this isn't something they can care about a lot, it's just going to always fall short. And I feel like that's what we see in cybersecurity a lot in general. Um, but, you know, when you come to these environments that are, that were perfectly managed just fine or run just fine when that risk wasn't there, and now you introduce all this risk at basically... I don't know where the decisions came to introduce a lot of the risk because things weren't as interconnected as they are. 
but we started connecting. I mean, there's going to be a theme when we talk about cloud a little bit later, it'll be the exact same theme. So I'll probably cover that there, but, um, basically we created a problem, um, that didn't really exist beforehand without having the solution, uh, you know, alongside of it. So that's why I read the backtrack so much. No, good point. Good point. Um, I live in, in a world where money rules, but yeah. it's what it is. What's up next? Well, I guess I'll jump into it because <laughs> I've mentioned it already. So um, just an interesting article, and I find these articles interesting, and I, and I think it's very true too. Um, this one is from HelpNet Security, and it's called Cybersecurity Fears Drive a... Re oh, sorry, I'm reading that incorrectly. Cybersecurity Fears drive a return to on-premise infrastructure from cloud computing. And basically, uh, Citrix did like some reporting and things and some surveys to kind of collect some data around um, how companies are using the cloud and their concerns with the cloud and how many people are actually moving back to on-prem, at least, you know, 50-50. And so they said of all the U.S. organizations that they interviewed in this, 42% have considered or have already moved half of their infrastructure back to on-prem. And then they mentioned some things about why a little bit. Um, and that was, you know, 41% uh, had unexpected security issues. Um, and then 31% even said they had the same number of cyber attacks. And so this is interesting to me because it's like that understanding, like um, attackers don't care where you are. So to think you'd have less security issues going to the cloud is uh, kind of concerning from the the notion that the cloud is only as secure as you make it, you know, too, right? Um, so if you're not spending the same amount of resources um, like you would on-prem for the skill sets and potential designs and architects and stuff like that, um, you kind of, you know, still have the same problem. Uh, and then they also talked about the like the cost expectations. So 29% high project expectations. Um, they said that only 65% said they can actually predict financially what it really would cost them when they went to the cloud with things. And, you know, it kind of got me thinking, you know, a lot of times when we teach security or cybersecurity, we always teach it in a way where here's the tools that go solve the problem. And we forget that the problem is different depending on what business you work for. Right. Um, all the tools and techniques might be the same, but the application and the thoughts and the wherewithal about it is is very different depending on where you work. Um, and so I think this is a great example of that, you know, when they talked about all the security issues they face going to the cloud, well, maybe they didn't quite understand their products or their application or whatever it is that they put in the cloud to defend it appropriately. Because sometimes you know, let's be honest, when the cloud first emerged and everyone was going there for, you know, potential cheap costs and everything like that, there weren't as many security solutions that existed for the cloud then, right? But people were still ready to move to the cloud. Um, and so it just shows the, the immaturity that kind of went into it. And also from a security practitioner, um, how sometimes I think we think about problems because we'd be like, well, if they only did this, they wouldn't have this problem. And it's like, it's easy to say that sometimes, but some businesses, you have to do certain things. There's acceptable risks. There's things like that. Um, and so then you have to be, and that's what makes us, us such a unique, when you meet really good cybersecurity professionals, um, their character is so interesting because of how they think about problems and how they solve problems. And that's why I love talking to people that have been in the industry for a long time. Um, they don't tell that they're the greatest person because they've been in the industry a long time. I'm not a fan of those people, but the people that can talk through problems and you can present a, a, you know, some sort of situation or talk through something and they just have such a unique perspective sometimes because through their experience, they've had to solve problems that would maybe be unsolvable or they had to figure out creative ways in order to um, address issues and risk. Um, and so speaking about the cloud and going to the cloud, and what does that offer? And like, I think people were just ill-prepared and not understand, like even the financial predictability. Like if you can't understand what design you need to put your business, part of your business in the cloud and understand what the cost would actually reflect, that's just poor understanding. It's not that the cloud is necessarily overly expensive. It's just your application might actually be more cost-effective running on-prem 
Um, and there's different risks associated with each. And so then you got to understand what risks are you trying to solve? Like if, is availability like your biggest business model? Or if you were to lose some availability, but you're able to secure things better, is that better, right? So um, I just thought it was a really interesting report. Um, and it kind of goes back to that theme of, you know, how do you protect things if you don't really know what they are or know how they work? When it comes to the OT water thing, I think there's kind of parallels when we're talking through that. As with this, you know, there's a really complex future problem that we don't know how to secure or manage effectively. So we are now reverting back to what we know. Um, so yeah, just an interesting thought piece, I would say. Um, but you know, it I think highlights some things and some points that I made um, very well. What are your thoughts? I think that um, I was whenever I start start reading this, the first question that popped in my mind was. What took it so long? <laughs> um, and to, I guess, to segue from our last post that we were discussing, um, I think the fact that cloud was like cheaper storage, cheaper processing, blah, 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 you name it. If organizations kept hearing the word cheap, they're like, well, do we need... Why are we operating there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, do we need the six admins to keep our on-prem stuff going? <clears throat> Do we need our own IT people? You know, then when you talk about like a full-time employee, that's a big expense. Whereas if you could lose one or two, how much would you save the company by transitioning? And, and then you don't have to worry about the hardware. You don't have to worry right. about, uh, you know, maintenance and, uh, you know, storing it, keeping the facility cool. All those ideas start to like look a lot bigger. But then no one thinks about, like you said, that the bad guys are going to look for your stuff no matter what. They're going to find it. And if you now have like an organization that's running 20, 30, 40, or 50 different organizations, or they're, you know, hosting all this information, the same data center, but they're all, you know, even if they are segregated, I mean, think about if that, that, that data center goes down. Or the adversaries get to the adversary or the um, the organization's like maintenance side. Not so much each organization, but what if they get to the um, the level where like the hypervisor is? What if they start getting access there and start wiping different organizations' data? Um, it's just yeah, I I think you're absolutely correct. We weren't ready to go there technologically, or in a technology sense, we were ready to go there. In a security mindset, absolutely not. No one thought about these questions or concerns that, um, in all fairness, may have never even presented themselves had we not all rushed to the cloud. One thing that I didn't see that I was really curious about, excuse me, is that I don't know if there was, or if one of the reasons that people were coming back to on-prem I didn't see any mention of insurance, like cybersecurity insurance, or if there were current struggles of like data regulation, governance, you know, whenever it comes to. Proving... Oh, yeah, because that was like a, a big hurdle, right? To go to the cloud for some sectors, right? Is what can they, data can they put there? So it is even achievable. And that was something you're trying to solve, but you're right. That would bring people back for sure. Absolutely, because if if they were looking at me like, well, you know what, the the place where you're storing the data won't tell you exactly where, they won't tell you whose data is with you because, of course, that's um, doesn't. First of all, it doesn't make sense, and two, that you know could be conflicting interests. But if organizations are like, well, you know what, there have been so many attacks in the cloud that we're not accepting a SOC two from uh, data centers anymore from cloud providers. We need better proof. And if the uh, the cloud provider is like, well, we don't want to do that because then that gets, though it makes their work a lot harder and almost maybe not feasible anymore. Um, well, so you can pay for privatized hardware in the cloud, but at cost. So it comes back to that. Maybe people had to do that for certain reasons, right? You know, these organizations are, and they that didn't go into their calculations financially 
because they didn't realize they had to upfront more cost to make things like we control the data and it's only on this hardware that's in the cloud somewhere versus you know so forth so so there's a chance that the that actually had something to do with the cost analysis maybe but at the same time if you hear cost saving and then oh well, a little bit more right are you going to be like yeah you know what let's do that <laughs> um i'm just curious I would like to see more information on that side of things. Um, if there were changes in governance regulations, uh, and so on, especially when it's coming to, you know, insurance side of the things. Yeah. I mean, it'd be really cool to see the people that participated in the, in the survey. I know that that's stuff that they probably wouldn't give out as much, but, um, because that would, that would also control some of the narrative as well right you know if you realize the people that are going back versus you'd be like oh that makes sense because they're in such and such space and whatever right um so that that would that would be an interesting set of data as well well cool that's all i got uh what's your next so next up is a group ib report on the viet cred care stealer um, which was a stealer that they uh, says it existed since August 2022, but they've recently seen it in the wild. Uh, one of the big things is that it's the stealer is really um, specific uh, and possibly even like targeted towards Facebook accounts, specifically uh, business uh, Facebook accounts. So Facebook accounts that are run by organizations, corporations, and so on. But this was like a specific functionality that they called out. Um, now, reading through it, it seems like a very, uh, or seems like a standard um, stealer. But the um, the way that it's spreading and the um, the target area that's hit is growing. Um, they said that uh, out of four or out of sixty three provinces inside Vietnam, forty four of them have seen via credit care. Um, the Industries go from universities, banks, um, to e-commerce platforms, and, and other major enterprises. So it's not like it's uh, specifically targeting any industry at all. Um, and this is one of one of these streams that actually operates under the stealer as a service model. So you're having, uh, or you're getting, you're stealing the credentials. Uh, and you're selling them or you're selling access to the tool to steal uh, from the organizations so that um, you can get those credentials to start using them. And when it comes to the goal of why, why are they targeting Facebook accounts, really, um, there's, a, there's a lot of things that you can do with it. Um, you know, you can purchase or you can send political messages. You can uh, say things to even tarnish the reputation of the organization that you've compromised you can you know run you know cryptocurrency scams uh phishing links whatever really your mind can think of but once you have access to those accounts i mean you can really do say or do anything you ever really wanted um now one thing i also liked about this article is that it mentioned that how or how they hunted for buyers of the um, of the word they use the stealer as a service, so they actually gave an insight of how they were looking to um, you know the internet, not just local execution. Uh, so they were looking for ways that they or they were sharing ways that they could figure out who's advertising for it, who's buying it, and and possibly using it, and so on. Then they actually analyzed payload, which I thought is is always interesting, and I saw some things that it normally does, uh, or malware in general normally does. Because if you think about the key rules, you think of persistence, um, and that was where it actually copied itself, but renamed itself and put it in the um, the startup the Windows startup directory. Uh, it also looks for cookies in uh, on the local machine for like, uh, or for the cookies in the browser's directory. So like. If you see C users, then the name, then Google, Chrome, user debt, uh, default network, that directory, where it stores the cookies, it'll start looking in there. Um, now, it also has the ability to steal credentials from Chrome, Chromium, Microsoft Edge. 
and they even mentioned a Vietnam specific um, browser as well. So that's where it starts to appear even more targeted. Um, not that they're just trying to look at any browsers, but they allow or they designed it to look for this specific browser used in this country, which it may be the only uh, it may be the only country that uses it. Um, and then, uh, or so the way I would handle that is if you do or if you are looking or if you're in an environment and you want to get an eye on those directories and cookies possibly uh, being um, stolen or even viewed, you could definitely add um, granular logging or audit logging on those directories. So if you're ever worried that, um, you know, how do we get the visibility from this directory and so on, you can go into Windows and turn on the specific auditing that will look for access to a file or access to a directory. Now, I think I've probably mentioned before that you, know, you probably don't want to enable this um, globally because those event IDs for files or access being granted or access being requested are very noisy. So when I when I talk about that, I mean event codes 4656 and event code 4663. Uh, 4656 being the access being requested. 4663 is uh, an event code that matches in with the um, the access being granted. So if you can correlate between those two IDs, you could possibly see what process was looking at those files and then those files directories. So from there, once again, if you think about how that's done, um, that might be noisy in itself. Because if the Chrome browser is trying to access those cookies on its own, you may see a lot of information from there and a lot of logs. But what that would allow you to do is to filter out things that aren't the browser. Um, you know, is, is anything other than Chrome reaching this, uh, this location and so on? Um, but be careful with that. Like I said, those event codes are extremely noisy. Uh, and if you enable it globally, you're probably going to just blow up your SIM. Um, but those were, it was a very interesting um, article. I've seen, um, or I've studied some, some Steelers in the past, but I don't think I've ever seen one that was so specific to a, a country like this before. Um, but, but what were your takes, Foley? So I, I like Group IB's stuff. Um, the Steelers interesting. The one thing I feel this Steeler is really just targeting people. And I get that assessment for a couple of reasons. Um, one, if you look at even just like the miter mapping, incredibly basic techniques, not even really much for privilege escalation, really. Um, because if you think about anyone, a, a home user that owns a computer, when they log in, they're our admin. There's no reason to really do anything else. And then also the Facebook thing is also interesting. I'm kind of surprised they didn't include the context in the report because it's it's really relevant when you talk about Vietnam. Um, one of the things you should really consider about Facebook is about 70% of their 97 million people use Facebook almost synonymous to using the internet. Like that is like Google's the internet to us. Facebook is the internet to Vietnam. So when you think about it targeting, that means they share all their content, they operate their businesses, then they send messages, everything they do contained in Facebook. So it's it's a great target if you're targeting Vietnamese people because they get access to Vietnamese businesses, uh, all their information, whatever it is. Um, so it really feels like a, just an attack on Vietnamese people in general. And it's the kind of the targeted treasure trove of um, where or why the attack looks the way it does. Um, so, you know, that part's interesting to me, um, as well as I think that's also when looking at, like, finding those highlights and trying to understand what they mean, I think is also really good work for people to do with threat reports in general. Um, because there's sometimes where, like, if something bothers me or I'm like, that just doesn't make sense, man, sometimes it's where it's just, um, digging into it. So I did that one with the Facebook thing. So the same thing I said, I was like, why so much emphasis on Facebook and why Facebook businesses? Um, because 
the attack chain didn't look like it was attacking a corporate network. It still looked like it was attacking a person. And then it all kind of made sense. Uh, so that stood out. And, you know, the big things about hunting for this, um, just there wasn't a lot of like behaviors to achieve what it is they're trying to achieve because it's kind of, uh, we already have access. We just need to access certain things and then kind of get out kind of thing or, you know, sit and collect. Um, was really the startup folders to, to kind of ways to skirt common defense mechanisms on a home machine, which would be disabling uh, AMSI, which is the uh, anti-malware um, engine for uh, scripting. Um, and then the Windows Defender, obviously, they, you know, people are just running home um, Defender and so on has administrative access right out of the gate because they're just basically have access to the computer. Um, it's adding exclusions makes it super easy just to operate at that point too. And no one, most people monitor for those things. Um, in big environments, people do not. So I feel like it's kind of unfair advantage um, for what they're up against based on how well this tool is being marketed and how well it's being utilized. But uh, yeah, those are my takes. That's pretty crazy. I didn't realize Vietnam. Uh, that, that, that's just absolutely crazy. I wonder what the uh, the uh, the equivalent of the American would be. Would it be Twitter, Reddit? Oh, TikTok. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Purely the Chinese uh, motivated uh, social networks. But uh, now, yeah, I mean, it's just interesting when you think of how we look at the internet versus how other countries look at the internet. Right, because we have kind of a free internet, and versus other countries, it gets very filtered or they're very dominated by certain technologies and things like that. Yeah, so it's just different. It's like going to a different country in person. Going to the internet in a different country is different as well. Yeah, we get to choose our poison. Okay. Yeah, it's dangerous enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, how are you going to wrap this up? So this was just an interesting um, article. For a couple of reasons, um, it's just a newsworthy one. Everyone kind of heard about Lockbit um, being kind of shut down, right, by the FBI. And so this is that. It's just I just pulled it from Hacker News, um, and it's just titled Lockbit Ransomware Group Resurfaces After Law Enforcement Takedown. And you know they have the sh the screenshot showing that you know they published the FBI gov data, which is interesting. But then, like I said, uh, trying to understand some things behind the thought process of different actors um you know i guess a hobby of mine um so you know obviously lockbit they're going to be very um strong willed against the fbi because of you know what they went through and what was being advertised about them and so forth but you know it was interesting because they said that the after they realized how they were potentially taken down um they apparently didn't patch a critical php flaw in their stuff and they acknowledged that and said that you know it was personal negligence and irresponsibility on their part but they have since fixed it and it took them some time to get back online because they had to rewrite some of the code with how the new php versions and stuff work um so i think that was kind of like a dig to say i mean it wasn't that hard we made it easy for them to take us down um that was kind of like their jab, I think. Um, but obviously, they... they uh, Now, talking about ransomware as a whole, what I loved about this article, and I don't know if this was the intent, because it was kind of random, because you had this whole Lockbit thing happening, right? And then they mentioned, you know, Russia arrests three Sugar Locker members, which is like another ransomware-affiliated group. And it's not common for Russia to arrest ransomware members, mind you, right? Um but what's interesting because Lockbit, I believe, operates out of Russia as well. But Lockbit also um, attacked Fulton County, Georgia. If you know, that's where the case that's happening in the U.S. right involving you know Trump and, and things. So a big case, Russia's very interested in. They claim to have hit Fulton County, Georgia, and stolen records, that, and they even claim that it would be very could affect the upcoming U.S. election, right? So very political ties there where they operate. And then you have Russia going after these other ransomware people in their country, but the ransomware people, the Sugar Locker members, actually targeted Russians and Russian-affiliated things. So um, obviously Russia has a very strong presence on how they want to handle these different groups and how they're operating. It's not best interest of the world or people. It's best interest of Russia based on how this article spells it out and and kind of how my, my opinion sits as well. Um, 
So it was kind of interesting that they brought these two things up and didn't really talk about them in that light. It's just like, here's some updated other news to attach to the end of the article. Um, so that was cool because, I mean, this also, you know, maybe it's a, a good faith thing, but the Sugar Locker members that they arrested also affected a large of, you know, big uh, medical groups and, and uh, people associated in, in the U.S. and other countries as well. So, I mean, it's not a, a bad thing. It just they became a problem when they, I guess they uh, their targeting wasn't so select. Um, so they kind of walked through that and they walked through some of the, like the costs and everything Lockbit historically um, and and their engagements. But Lockbit is it feels like a very supported group. They've made a decent amount of money historically, so it's not like um, to demotivate them to well, want to stop their activities would be very hard if there is. A lot of support in their activities and they've already made enough money thus far so it's just going to be interesting to see how this kind of goes back and forth because i'm sure it will um to some degree and kind of where it'll land but i thought the details that were mentioned in this kind of somewhat benign at newsworthy case were also interesting when looking at some of the highlights so well if anything answered this um or if anything was answered by this article was that what do you have to do to get arrested by Russian law enforcement? Just not be friends with Russia? <laughs> well, I mean, like... What does it take that... to be executed? I don't, I don't want to go down that path, but... <laughs> like, um, they arrested, what, those three those three individuals they named? Um, mm -hmm. That had connection with the Sugar Locker ransomware group? And, and we know historically that... Russia likes to protect its people. Um, they won't extradite them. They won't, you know, the FBI can put up and say, you know what, uh, these are our top 10 cyber uh, or hackers that we're looking for. And, you know. So if it sounds like, you know, when they, one of the things they mentioned, it says driving user traffic to fraudulent schemes popular in Russia and the Commonwealth of the Independent States which means that the themes they were using were clearly going to be only effective to those people, means that they were targeting Russian people pretty hard as far as phishing-related things. That's all it took. So, yeah, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, aiming at Russian people. Mm -hmm. I, I think I, I, when I read that, I think I was under the assumption that these three were becoming scapegoats that... They did something, or because maybe Russia was making an example uh, out of them because they went too far and got, um, well, Trump's information and stuff. So, well, Lockbit's the one that got that. But what's interesting about that comment is if they're going to go after people that may even use Russian popular themes to potentially fish. So very specific. Um, it shows why a lot of these groups spend a lot of effort to make sure based on language and keyboard layout, other techniques they do, you know, what was it? CHCP chop or whatever. It tells you the language that's being used on a machine that you don't normally see that being executed, but for some reason, ransomware groups do it. And you're like, well, that seems like it's really showing their hand. They can't afford to make that mistake, you know, because um, they will not. There is not very forgiving when you make that mistake. So um, it really shows that you should pay attention to those types of techniques because they matter in this kind of light. Very good point. I think that was my biggest takeaway, <laughs> really. <laughs> uh, and, and and I was you know I was debating whether. Um, or I wasn't sure if there's was going to be a rebrand or a rise from, or, or like a Phoenix moment. Um, I guess the Phoenix moment actually happened. So Lockbit's back. Um, they didn't have to rebrand or move or anything. So that, 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 that was a pretty interesting, uh, especially cause like all the law enforcement was saying, look what we did. This is great. Um, I think we all knew that was a power uh, amount of time before they came back. Um, but I think we were hoping that it was a little bit longer. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like if they do good IT operations for what they do, it's going to be hard to disrupt, which 
it's kind of a good analogy. Maybe if we do good IT operations where we're being attacked, it'll be harder to disrupt, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, our environments are bigger than their environments, but uh, touche, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but that's all I got. Cool. Well, I've got one um, update before we close out here, and it's for your workshop, right? Hunting for Initial Access, which will happen March 20th, 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I don't know if you want to mention any quick anecdotes there. No, it's going to be like our normal uh, workshops that we run where we're going to introduce you to the topic, the idea of what's going on. Um, you know, we're going to touch a high-level idea of what initial access is. And then we're going to actually use some uh, of the community hunt packages that you can find on the Hunter platform. And we're going to definitely be uh, hunt through a set of data to find that malicious activity. It's always a fun time. You can earn your badge uh, while you're at it, which you could, you know, post wherever you want. Um, See, so I, I always enjoy seeing the LinkedIn uh, posts that follow the workshops. Uh, it's good to see people uh, working hard and put their skills to the test. Uh, you know, it, it feels good. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So with that, I just want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Uh, looking forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of February 26, 2024. Happy hunting, everyone. Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, Check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.